I am a very fortunate person in a lot of ways because I have never known a period in my life when I have not known the Lord. Um, when I was a little kid, my parents divorced when I was like one. And my, my mom moved back in with my grandmother. And my grandmother, uh, who has been dead for probably, um, probably about uh, 35, 40 years now, really instilled in me a love for the Lord. She, she took us to church, she took us to Sunday school, but more than just taking us to the pro through the process, she really modeled that in her life. She modeled what it really was to be a Christian, to love your neighbors when they didn't love you, to give sacrificially, not just to the church, but to neighbors who had so much less than you did. She used to always say, um, and it's something that has stuck with me all my life, train a child the way it should go, and it will not depart from you. And what that really meant to me a lot, and she used to say it all the time, because you'd see people who'd been brought up in Christian homes, and they were still doing things that really weren't quite um, aligned with that. And she would say, but they'll come back. You know, if you've, if you've trained them right, they'll come back. And over the years, not only have I watched them come back, I've watched myself stray and come back a lot. And so for that, I am always really, really grateful. Uh, Stephen and Tad told me I should use about 30 minutes, so i got some cheat sheets here because I can ramble on and on for forever. And um, I really want to make sure that I can, number one, stick to the time, and number two, um, hit all the points that they wanted me to hit. So um, I'm having a little problem with my foot today, so I'm going to be kind of up and down. I hope that's. Um, now I think I'll be okay because as long as I get the pressure off for a little while, I'm I'm all right. Um, I mentioned you know I I've known the Lord all my life and. Um, I was always in church, I was always doing all the right things, and then um, in 1966, I got a scholarship to go, I, I was born and raised in Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas, and oh, I wasn't born there, but I, I grew up in Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas, and 1966, I got the scholarship to go to Barnard College in New York, Barnes the Women's College at Columbia University. And when I got there, I decided that um, I wanted to be this urban, sophisticated intellectual. And so God didn't fit. You know, all the things I'd grown up with didn't fit there. I didn't want to be seen as this little country hick Texas girl who was this little Christian. And so one of the first things I did, I had a, a freshman writing class and I wrote a paper that says, God is dead. That was the title of my paper. And it was a pretty horrible paper in the first place. Uh, and you know, I, didn't, I don't think I did a really good job of writing it. But my writing professor called me in and said, 
I want you to redo this paper because number one, you don't believe this, and, and um, it's you shouldn't go around really trying to be something that you're not. And she really. Um, she was Jewish, quite frankly, and she really said to me in some very direct terms that um, I had, there was nothing about that paper and what she had known about me since I'd been in the class that said that I believed that God was dead and if, and there was no reason for me to try to move away from God because I would find in the long term that God would be my refuge. And even with her, she didn't use those terms, but she really explained to me how important it was to be who I really was and what I had been trained all of my life to that point. I was 17 when I went to college. Uh, what I'd been all that time that I shouldn't abandon that. and. What I didn't know at the moment was that she was setting me off in a direction, getting me back on path, uh, when I was really going to need it because college in those years was very challenging for me, especially the first couple of years. Uh, I went to college during the Vietnam War and we did more rioting and picketing than we did studying. Uh, there was a lot of angst and anxiety. The, we were right in the midst of the civil rights movement. And so there was just a ton of things coming at you all the time. Add to that the mixture of some very traumatic things that were going on in my family. And I was kind of a basket case of a mess. And had it not been for that strength that I found by turning back to what I really believed. I actually met a group of ladies at the school. We used to go to church together. We were the only people in our dorm who went to church. And we would get up on Sunday mornings, and none of you are old enough to know anything about it, but Abyssinian Baptist Church, and I never grew up a Baptist, but Abyssinian Baptist Church was led by this very larger than life black politician named Adam Clayton Powell. And, <laughs> and Adam Clayton Powell had a lot of very good things about him, but Adam Clayton Powell was a crook, if you want to. <laughs> but we didn't know that. All we knew that was, we didn't realize that. All we really knew was that Adam Clayton Powell was really this leader in the black community. He was a real leader in the civil rights movement. But what it really meant to me more than anything was really that we were in church. We actually, we went, we heard, we heard the gospel. And it kept us going during a time when things were, were really um, very chaotic in our lives. And um, when, College was over, you know, I'm still, um, I had learned a lot of lessons, but I also was continuing to be very rebellious. Um, you know, the Bible talks about the rebellious child. I was that. All through high school, junior high school, elementary school, I was a perfect child. But when I went off to school, I, college, I decided that, huh, I'm, I'm an adult. I can live life on my own terms. And so one of the greatest rebellious movement, movement decisions that I ever made was I decided 
because I was finishing up college, that I was going to get married. And my mom said, no. And I said, yes, I am. And she made all kinds of threats about what she would and wouldn't do if I went down this path. And I said, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I'm an adult. And so I got married. And it wasn't a bad marriage. It was, um, I can't say my now ex-husband, you know where this is going, was, <laughs> was a bad person. He, he really was not. And he and I, quite frankly, are still friends today, believe it or not. But um, 14 years after the marriage, um, one day he walked in and packed his clothes and left. And all of a sudden, you know, I was in a, a whole different world um, because I wasn't working. I had two kids and I had no idea this was coming. None. It was probably, it was like someone throwing hot coals on you. Just, it was a horrible feeling. I hope no one in this room ever has to experience it. But the good news from that was that I didn't feel alone or devastated because for about a year up until that very night, um, I had had this yearning to study the Bible, just a deep yearning that would not let go. And I had joined a Bible study right up the street from my house. And that whole year, we studied faith. And I got so sick of hearing about faith because I was interested in learning other things that the Bible had to teach. But the, the, the leader of the Bible said it was gentleman Reginald Dancel and every Tuesday night we were studying about faith and I was saying to myself when are we going to get beyond faith because there's more to the Bible than faith what I didn't know was that I was going to need to understand faith more than I ever had and that was preparing me as Reginald told me few days after this happened he said we, I was talking to him and he said to me fella God didn't want this to happen to you but he knew it was going to happen and he has prepared you well to make a very very long story short throughout that whole process of getting towards which actually took almost three years um, God was there for me he never let me down and there were some trying and difficult moments um, he provided for me in every way he gave me strength he gave me courage most of all during that period I actually began to feel like God literally talked to me not because I heard a voice but I would pray and I would cry and lament about things and a person would come in my life somehow that would bring a message that I knew was from God. A perfect example of that is about probably 
two years into the process, I was having a really, really bad day. By now I was working, but I was having a really bad day all, all around this whole divorce situation. And on the way home, I was crying. I was literally crying. I don't know how I got home because I was driving and crying and just fussing with God. And I was saying, God, no one cares about me. Everybody cares about what happens to everyone else, but no one cares about me. And no one looks out for me. And it was all about me. And I lived in this big house up on a hill. And the... Um, the mailbox was at the bottom of the hill, so I stop the car as I get to the bottom of the driveway, and I pull out the mail, I get inside, I open the mail, and there's, a, there's an envelope in there, and it's addressed, but it doesn't have a stamp on it. So uh, there was always something going on with my now estranged husband, so I thought, what is this? And I open it up, and there is a, there's a little pamphlet in there, and I still have the pamphlet to this day. Um, and it's, the pamphlet was called, There's a, The Miracle is in Your Mouth. And I opened the cover, and inside the cover was written this note, Thela, Arthur and I care about you. We're concerned about what happens to you. Signed, Barbara Carroll. And Arthur and Barbara Carroll were members of my church, just devout Christian people who love the Lord and who really love me and my kids. So I, now I'm crying even more and I call Barbara and I says, Barbara, you have no idea what this means for me to get this today. And she says, I bought that book, that pamphlet for you several weeks ago. And I meant to drop it in the mail and I just kept forgetting and kept forgetting. And today I kept getting this urge, this, this message, take it to her house, take it to her house. And she said, so I, and she lived all the way across town from me. We did not live close to each other. But she drove to my house and put the pamphlet in my mailbox with exactly the message that I needed to hear that day. And the reality is that throughout my journey with, with, in, in life and with Christ, he has always sent messages to me. And I know clearly that they are messages that he's sending to me. And out of all the pain of that period, one of the great things that came out of it was God, um, Chad says, God blessed me with a lot of things because I did the little things. And one of the, I, I always think about one of the little things that happened during the divorce process was a prayer that I always had. I don't want to be bitter. And the reason why I pray that all the time is my mother had a friend who had gotten divorced in a similar situation, and she was the most bitter, evil woman I had ever known. And I really didn't want to be bitter. And so I would pray, God, please don't make me bitter. And there were this couple, there was this couple in my church, um, Ben and Rhonda. And I had dinner at their house one day, and Ben says to me, Bella, you need to be nice to him. He says, you need to treat him with love, like God treats you with love, because treating him with love pours coal upon his head, whatever the scripture is, I can never repeat it. 
But, you know, I thought, really? And so, uh, but the reality is I did start trying to be kind and, and trying to respond in love when things weren't being done to me in love. And quite frankly, um, it really paid off because it, it, it brought down the tension, it brought down the stress levels. And at, near the end, at the end of this whole ugly, bitter divorce situation, um, God blessed me by sending me to Dallas, back to Dallas where I was from, to a job that I never dreamt of having. Uh, a door just opened one day, and I won't tell you the long story, but the door opened and one day I found myself with a, a really great job at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. I had had several careers before I went to the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, one of which was raising my kids because the last the years that we lived in Atlanta when I was married, I didn't work. I was a housewife. But prior to having kids, I actually worked and I had, you know, I had a, a kind of a career. I didn't pay much attention to it because I had um, Laura, your husband, who was a partner in the law firm, and I really didn't need to pay attention to my <laughs> career. And so, uh, now that came after, after the fact. But, um, but so all of a sudden I have this really great job that a friend, someone I worked with years before had said to me, Bella, I think you would love working at the airport and it would open worlds to you that you've never, you've never experienced before. You would be perfect there. So my gift from God at the end of a long, ugly divorce was the opportunity to go to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, it became very clear to me that this is really what I was meant to do, that I had a passion for it. I loved it. I loved every aspect of it. Um, just a, a really short story. I came to work. On, and they ushered me into a room. I was supposed to go to orientation. The, my new boss says, oh, no, she'll come over later. Just uh, bring her into this meeting. I go into this meeting, and there's all this terminology and things that I never heard of, and I'm sitting there as lost as I can be, but it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm wondering what in the world these people talking about. But it does sound like it's very exciting. And so it was lunchtime, and I still hadn't been to orientation. The people from HR called over and said, where is she? And they, he says, just bring something over and let her sign it so that she can at least get paid. And so someone came in with some papers, and I signed them and I stayed in the meeting all day long and I worked at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport for five years and I never ever ever went to HR. <laughs> so that, and that's just how fascinating the job became for me just from almost the moment I walked in the door. And so from all the pain I think that God did open doors. The next thing that happened is another long story that I'll just skip right through. Um, I was at Dallas-Fort Worth. I always have plans for my life that apparently God doesn't like because he always has another plan. So my mom was in Dallas. My dad was in Fort Worth. My sisters and brothers were all in Dallas. I was happy. I was having a great time. Um, I had a great job. And all of a sudden, someone calls me about a job, an airport job in Kansas City. And I'm saying, I don't want to go to Kansas City. I go to the interview, and I end up with a job offer. And I swear, they 
they, I think they brought me back to Kansas City three different times trying to convince me that I that they wanted me to come for that job and I kept saying I don't think so um, and I was really I was really uh, perplexed by this idea because I'm here in Dallas Fort Worth where I grew up I'm having a great time I'm doing a great job so why should I have to go to Kansas City and I kept praying about it and praying about it and I couldn't get answers and so I called a minister friend of mine in Atlanta who had really nurtured me through the long and bitter divorce and I said Rodney I have this job offer to go to Kansas City and I really don't want to go because I don't really think that's what God wants me to do one of the things about me I'm very willful and I'm still struggling with that um, but Rodney's I says if I go to Kansas City and it's really not what God wants me to do God's not going to be happy and so things aren't going to go well because he's not going to like that. And so Rodney says to me, Thelma, God really doesn't care where you live. What God cares about is that wherever you are, you are doing his will. You are literally um, letting your life be his gospel. And that and a couple other weird things that happened. I ended up in Kansas City in a job there that I often wonder why in the world am I in Kansas City because I don't want to be here um, and there's just it didn't seem to see, seem to be a purpose the whole time I was in Kansas City I went through what I described to one minister friend who called me from Dallas to check on me um, I described it to him as I'm having this really wilderness experience I really think that God has left me here and I don't have friends, I don't have family, I don't have anything. I had joined a church, I was going to church, I had gotten involved in Disciples Bible Study. If any of you have been to the United Methodist Church, they, had, they have a series that they call Disciples Bible Study. And I had joined Disciples Bible Study, but I still didn't feel connected. And my minister friend says to me, fellas, sometimes God gives you a wilderness experience because he wants you to learn to lean on him and only him because when you were in Dallas you had your mom you had your sisters you had your friends uh, when you even when you were in Atlanta you had you still had your ex-husband you had friends you had everything that you needed so you you maybe didn't need God as much now you're in Kansas City and this could be the experience where you're learning to lean on him more and that's exactly what happened the whole four years that I lived in Kansas City I had probably two friends I worked a lot but God became my best friend he became the what I started every day with what I ended every night with the person that I cried and lamented with the person that I experienced all my joys with so God truly became the center of my life and then Late in, uh, in, but the last year I was there, I actually found out, I think, why God had me in Kansas City. I had, um, I had an employee who was my administrative assistant. I was the number two person at the airport in Kansas City. And I had been able, the second week I was there, um, I was hiring my new administrative assistant. 
and the, the airport in Kansas City was owned by the city of Kansas City and they were going through what's called a RIF, which means laying off people in every department except for the airport and because the airport in most in all cities actually because it's the law airports money is separate from anybody else's money so I was having to interview to fill my job all these people who were being rifted from other city departments and I thought if they're rifting them they're like the bottom of the barrel and so they're sending them all out to the airport which is pretty typical and so um, I went through a lot of interviews and finally this young man comes in his name was Carl and he was very bright and just he had a college degree he was well read he was well organized and I just thought, wow, he's really great. And he was being rifted from the water department. So I interviewed him. I felt really good about him. But I like people who are, who are aggressive and who really are climbing to go somewhere. And so I said to Carl, so Carl, you've been an administrative assistant for a while. And now you're coming over here to be an administrative assistant. What is it you really want to do? in your career and he says I really enjoy being an administrative assistant and believe it or not I was sitting there I had had a really bad car accident I was in a cast from here to here this very leg and, and I'm sitting with my chair my leg up on a chair and I'm telling him that there's something else that he really wants to do other than just be an administrative assistant and he looked at me and he says well you know, my, my thought on, on working is that whatever it is you do, you should do it the very best you can. If you are the, the, the deputy as you are, you should be the very best deputy you can. And if you are the assistant, you should be the very best assistant. If you are, he looked at me and says, if you're the gardener out there riding the lawnmower, you should be the very best gardener there is. And he says, um, and everybody isn't as aggressive as you are. <laughs> so, so I said, you got the job. <laughs> because here's someone who's going to talk back to me, who's going to really, and the, that's a very long story to tell you, Carl turned out to be the very best assistant I, had, I have ever had in my work career. He was absolutely dedicated. Um, Carl was gay. I knew it. And this was during the time when AIDS was rampant. So after Carl had been working for me for about three years, he called me one morning and said, Bella, I'm not going to come to work today because I won the lottery. I said, oh my God. <laughs> I was so excited and I said Carl that's great so let us know you know what you want us to do with your final paycheck and all and I go to work because Carl is never absent never sick never anything but there unless he has scheduled a vacation so I go to work and Carl calls me and says I've never lied to you and I'm not gonna start now I have eight 
and he tells me how it's beginning to manifest and how he doesn't want to come back to work. And I said, Carl, you need to come back to work because more than ever now, you need friends and you need your benefits. So you need to come to work. I said, I know you're not feeling well now. Take a few days, but let's work through this. He asked me, he says, please don't tell anybody. And I says, I won't tell anybody, but I'm the deputy. I have a boss. I says, I have to tell John because I owe him that. And John will hold your confidence. So I tell John, and he, John immediately puts me in charge of learning everything I can about AIDS, and, which I did. And Carl comes back to work, and it gradually begins to creep out that he has AIDS. And people came to my office and said, I don't want him in the lunchroom. I don't want him this. I don't want him that. We were having our annual Christmas potluck, and people from Ox came in and said, if you let that AIDS-infested name come, then we aren't coming. And I said, don't come. Uh, because we, one of the things that we did, we, we had a lot of AIDS education for our employees to really talk about what is AIDS, how is it transmitted, what are the things that happen. Um, and Carl came to the, to the luncheon, everybody came to the luncheon. Uh, long story short, over the next probably year, people really learned that Carl didn't change because he had AIDS. Carl became sicker and sicker, and um, eventually the only time we could see Carl was in the hospital because that's where he ended, ended up just virtually living. And on my sister's birthday in October, he died. And the same people who said that they would not eat with him, talk to him, do other things with him, were all around his bed as he passed away. I felt like God sent me there because I had a love of people, I had the love of Christ, and I had helped Carl to go through a journey that was very, very difficult at the time. About two months after Carl passed, I was offered a job in San Diego. And so I ended up in San Diego um, because I don't know why. <laughs> the, what has what has really sustained me though through everything that's happened to me here in San Diego and I've had good bosses, I've had bad bosses, I have had some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows but through every single one of them God has placed people in my path, His people in my path who have helped me to bridge whatever it was I was going through uh, to help me to experience the joy of the things that were good. And one short story, I had a horrible boss. You know, you've seen that movie, Horrible Boss? I had him about three years after I came here. And uh, he was so horrible to me. In all honesty, I didn't like him either. Um, but he 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 did what um, Bill McEwen later explained to me was constructive dismissal from my job. He couldn't stand me. He couldn't find a way to get rid of me based upon my work, and so he started taking my work 
and he would he would call my office. My he would call out to the airport because he was down at the port, and he would he would remove certain pieces of work and give them to someone at the port and not even talk to me. And so all this was going on in a very hostile environment. And I just knew any day I was going to get fired. And so I went, uh, someone told me, you should go talk to Bill McEwen, who goes to our church. This is, our church used to meet at the Clarion Hotel. And um, so I call Bill up and make an appointment. He's very gracious. Um, he sees me and he talks to me about what's going on. He actually he brings in another lawyer from their firm. And he tells me he's doing what's called constructive dismissal from your job. And they advise me on how to manage that. But Bill says to me, Bill, I want to pray for you. And he does. He prays for me. Uh, just This is just as I'm getting ready to leave his office after a very long visit. You can see how much I talk. And so it was a very long visit. Um, and so then he says, I want you to do something for me. And I said, okay. And he says, my, my boss's name was Dennis. And he says, every day I want you to pray for Dennis. I go, really? <laughs> you know, you, you would really have to, have to know some of the stuff that Dennis did to me. And so he says, yeah, I, every day I want you to pray for Dennis. And I'm not going to lie, I didn't pray for Dennis every day. But a lot of days I tried to be gracious and pray for Dennis. Long story short, Dennis is gone, and I'm still there. Uh, uh, and it was almost, really, it was almost supernatural what happened to Dennis, to, uh, to make him leave. Dennis, it, there's a long story behind it, but um, the board actually found out quite by accident about this relationship issue between Dennis and me. They made Dennis, they wouldn't re renew De Dennis's contract unless he healed his relationship with me, and that became a very interesting process. Um, but right in the middle of this healing that really wasn't a healing, 9-11 um, happened. And 9-11 changed the world as we know it. And not at, at airports. And because of 9-11 and a lot of other things, um, Dennis left about three weeks after, well, he announced his leaving a week after 9-11, and a few weeks later, he was gone. And so at the same time, the new airport authority had been, had been set up by the state legislature. And in the, in the legislation that sets up the airport authority, because we were part of the port, every job at the airport was guaranteed to have a job in the new airport authority except for me. They, they didn't call my name. They said the senior director of aviation, which was my title, shall lead the separation, which was to take a year, at the end of that separation, the new board, which would be appointed at the airport authority, would select someone to lead the airport authority. And so my job was going to be over once the transition finished. And I was so excited about the opportunity to really go through this process of separating 
an organization and setting up a brand new organization, which was very complex and challenging and exciting. Um, what I had a team of people working with me to help with that, and our goal became to create this agency that really didn't look like any other public agency, that really had a spirit of creativity and innovation, nimbleness, and became a place where people love to come to work. And so we had all these goals that we had put in place, and I was excited, even though I didn't, I didn't think I would be the one who would lead it. I told you I always have plans. So my plan was that let's finish this, and then I love Texas. I absolutely love Texas. And so I wanted to go home and spend three to six months doing nothing because I was exhausted beyond anything you can believe. We worked 18 and 20 hour days, seven days a week almost, trying to make this happen in a year as the state legislature required. So I was wiped up and I was ready to go. And so and I had no debt, I didn't own a home, my car was paid for, I didn't have a single credit card that had a dime on it, I had nothing that was holding me in San Diego. So here's my perfect opportunity to go home and kind of re regroup and spend some time with my mom and, and go on with life. Well, the month the new board started, they came in and they said to me, well, we are going to recruit for a new head of the airport, new president CEO, and I said, oh, fine. Uh, that's fine with me. <laughs> and so they said, you can apply, and I said, no. <laughs> and it wasn't, the reason why I said no wasn't because, you know, I didn't, re I wasn't really interested in the job. I, I really didn't care at that point, but I thought, you know what, if they really wanted me to do this job, they just offered it to me, I've done it. You know, I, I set the thing up, I ran the airport before it became independent, so if they really wanted me, they just give me the job. So I shouldn't have to apply for a job that I have been doing for seven years and then set this thing up with this little team of people that, I mean, they didn't give us any extra people to even do all this work. And I said, no, no, no. I said, but here's what I'll do. I says, as long as it takes you to recruit someone, I will stay here because this means that much to me. I don't want to leave you in the lurch and I don't want this thing to kind of go down the drain because there's no leadership. So I'll say as long as it takes you to recruit, but I won't be applying for the job. And so the chairman of the board goes back into the closed session meeting they're having and the next month they come when they meet again, they come and offer me the job. Well, there goes my plan to go home. Uh, but I've never regretted it. I have absolutely never regretted it. And um, we have done a lot of things at the airport. Uh, you've seen the buildings go up and you read in the paper all the accolades of all of the 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 awards we received and we are um, everything from uh, one of the most sustainable organizations in the county to one of the most well-financed and well-financially managed organizations in the county. We won um, employer of choice in the county and for organizations outside. You name it, we have won it. But I think what has really made me 
I'm most proud and the legacy that I think I leave at the airport is one that stems from my values as a Christian. And those values are that I love people, I treat them all with respect. Um, I have a workplace where people feel valued. Um, and just one of the one of the anecdotes about that, several years ago, about probably five years ago, um, it was during the time when um, gay marriage was really on the ballot and a lot of things. I have a lot of a lot of Christian people who work with me, and I, I don't go around with a sign across my head. I am Christian. I just try to live my life in a way that says I'm Christian. I don't have any problems if anyone says anything to me and says, you know, my faith guides what I do. I, I will tell anyone that. So one day, I get an email from an employee who's very Christian, wonderful young man, wonderful. Well, has had, he's probably is one of the most, he's, a, he's an ascending leader in our organization. And I get this email from him and he says, I can't believe that you're a Christian and you're allowing all of this gay stuff to go on. Because we have inclusionary activities, we have diversity activities, and we salute and celebrate everybody. And so he says, he tells me about how he's gone over to HR and he's seen these posters with pictures celebrating diversity and there are all these gay couples and things like that. And he had a lot of negative things to say. Well, you're of the generation where you know you don't put anything in an email. And so I'm smart enough to know, don't answer that. So I call him in and I said, you know, can we talk? And so he comes into my office and we spent about an hour or more talking about this issue. And I said to him, I said, John, you know, it, what I really believe as a Christian is that I love everybody and that whether whatever the Bible teaches about homosexuality, that is really between that person and their and God. My job is to love them, and I think the problem, if uh, with anybody, is that they don't if they don't is if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so that's all that's important to me. And all I want to do is to show them that they are loved that they are respected and that they are valued. And I'm not going to make any difference in a person because they are black, because they are female, because they are gay, whatever it is, we're going to treat all people the same and I'm going to love them. And that's all I can ask. And I'm sure I didn't change John's mind that day, but today John is one of the most inclusionary people <laughs> in our organization and it shows in his work, in his leadership, in everything he does and it's not just the gay issue, it's the gender issue, it's the, it's the color issue, it's the ethnicity issue. John is a true leader and I think that, that the ability to say that to him came because Christ gives me the courage to live my faith. And I think that's all he wants me to do. The greatest legacy I leave is a legacy not of buildings. My name is in the cornerstone of buildings. That's not important to me. 
What's important to me is that people see Christ in my life, that people see that the environment we have created under my leadership has been one where people feel valuable, value, where they feel respected, where they feel safe, that they can be whoever they are. And I think that's all God calls me to do. As Rodney Smothers, the minister, told me, God doesn't care where you are. What he cares about is that you're living the gospel that he has for you. And that's what I try to do. Um, I have had challenges beyond belief. Uh, right now we're going through the public art challenge <laughs> that we're going to get beaten up tonight on Channel 8 about. And uh, people, I was talking to the guy who's leading this whole thing, and he called, he, and he was saying, you're just a bureaucrat. Well, I'm one of the least bureaucratic people you know. I, I really am. I don't know any rules. I don't abide by them. Um, you know, I, tell, I have, a, behind my desk is probably a, a credenza with that wide over there with all kinds of, of books in it with all kinds of rules because airports are heavily regulated and there are all kinds of laws and so I tell myself all the time don't I don't read those just <laughs> tell me how I can legally do what it is I want to do and so somehow they always find a way for me to be able to do it because I can't stand all the bureaucracy that goes with it I'm very right brain is that it right brain person um, and that's you know I think that that's that's just who I am and that's what how God has made me and God has I just feel so extraordinarily blessed I, I really really do and there's this poem by Langston Hughes that I really can't quote but I'll, I'll um, anybody know who Langston Hughes is? Black poet? Uh, he wrote this poem uh, The Mother to Her Son and he says in the poem life to me for me ain't been no crystal stair it's had, it's had rough boards and splinters. It talks about all the rough parts of life. Every time something happens to me, I think about that point. Because life for me ain't been no crystal stair. There have been tremendous highs, tremendous lows. As I stand here tonight, some, of the, some things are going on in my family that are breaking my heart. But I know for sure that God is with me, that he hasn't forsaken me, that he will always provide a path for me, and that even, even when things seem like this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me and I am never going to get over this, he is working a plan that I know nothing about and that plan is always so much greater than that plan that I always have. I've always got a backup plan. Never works out, but I always have one. Thank you so much for indulging me.